Welcome to the Black Duck Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Wilkins. I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with a fascinating collection of folks, all of whom have in common that they've made a way for themselves by finding an intersection between thoughtful consideration and the tactile work of getting their hands dirty. This is an examination of intention, capability, and craft. It's where philosophy meets the blue-collar work ethic and where I find real value. Hey folks, I wanted to take a quick minute to record an introduction to this inaugural episode of the Black Duck Revival podcast. This week my guest is going to be duck call maker Josh Raggio of Raggio Custom Calls. I've been aware of Josh for quite some time. He's, he's well known in the duck hunting community because of the high quality and uh, beautiful duck calls that he makes. My first personal introduction to him was earlier this spring. We were both on a turkey hunt in Kansas that was put on by Sitka Gear. And I got to spend a couple of days hanging out and hunting with Josh, getting to know him a little bit. We kind of discussed our own personal ethos. And there just seem to be a lot of cool points of overlap there. Again, if you're not familiar with duck calls or the fanaticism surrounding them, I think this is a pretty cool introduction and primer to that. Obviously, I'm a person who spends a lot of time blowing a duck call and has spent a ton of time trying to perfect my own style of of running a call. We'll use a little bit of terminology that you might not be super familiar with, but I think context will give you all the info that you need on that. What I really like about this conversation is that it's so much more than just the act of making duck calls. We talk about why Josh has chosen to live and raise his family in the same small town in Mississippi that he grew up in. We talk about familial connections, the intersection of craft and art and functionality. You know, it's it's, it's a really kind of cool introduction and primer to what this podcast is really supposed to be all about, which is folks who have found a way to meld artistry and thought and craft and working with their hands into a lifestyle and a way of making a life for themselves. So I'm sure you're going to enjoy this. Again, this is with Josh Raggio of Raggio Custom Calls. Thanks very much. All right, I'm here in Raymond, Mississippi with Josh Raggio uh, of Raggio Custom Calls here in his really gorgeous uh, duck call making shop. Uh, thanks for having me over here, bud. Yeah, man. Thank y'all for making the trip over. Yeah, no, it's a fun drive. We were talking about it uh, kind of coming on the way over here. It's it's very similar to our side of the Mississippi. It's just kind of drive over that bridge, and there's a little bit of stylistic difference. With, like we talked about uh, kudzu and palmetto, but... It still feels very familiar, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've been over that way a little bit. Um, I spent a little more time in the Delta of Arkansas. Yeah. You know, but uh, so obviously very different from this. But, uh, yeah, your area, um, yeah, much the same, much the same. Yeah. What? Uh, so, like I said, we're in Raymond, Mississippi here, man, and I know that you grew up in and around here. Your family's from here. You've chosen to uh, run your business and have your family here. Uh, tell me a little bit about the town, if you don't mind, just – well, it's an old, uh, it's an old town. Um, I, I describe it when people ask me, uh, kind of as Mayberry, 
Okay. Uh, we got a little town square, uh, you know, four-way stop. Uh, do have a little grocery store, you know, got a few little restaurants. Um, you know, the bank has been here, I think, since uh, late 1800s. It's a small, you know, small town bank. And, I, you know, it's just slow living uh, compared to a lot of other places that I've been uh, and lived. It's, it's just uh, it's a very genuine town. Um, uh, just things move a little slower here. And, you know, I like that. I like that. I don't like being in the hustle and bustle. Uh, basically, if, you know, my age group wants to be somewhere, I probably don't want to be in that area because hmm. I, I hate traffic. Uh, you know, now that I do this for, uh, you know, a living full time, I don't really get out much. And uh, so I, I don't have to fight that traffic. But, um, yeah, just just an old, just a really cool old town. A lot of antebellum homes here. Um, you know, we got some new things going. Uh, we ha- you have a new event space, have a new store. Uh, so it's really creating a buzz around our little town. And when I say that, I mean kind of around the Jackson uh, metro area. It's becoming a more popular place to live for, you know, the younger generations, uh, which I think is pretty cool. Um, but there's no more space to build. You know, it's just a really small community. So you'd have to get out in the county now if you wanted to build a new house in Raymond. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's kind of the growth is is not really possible uh, inside the city limits, which I think is pretty cool. Um, How many people are in the town? Uh, in the city, I think it's around 800. Um, but actual Raymond, you know, zip code uh, is about 2,400 because it does go out into the county. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we have a community college here. Uh, Hines Community College was actually one of the largest in the southeast. Uh, we have a retirement home, uh, golf course. So when school's in and all that, there's actually quite a few people in this little town. Yeah, that's man, that's that's really neat. And it's kind of a... Uh and maybe it's just because my own personal experience, but it, it seems very indicative of like small Southern places, you know, that uh, like I originally grew up in St. Louis and just the neighborhood I grew up in had like 30,000 people, Holy you know, just like the little neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I originally moved to Arkansas and went to this small college and there were fewer people in the entire city than there were just in my neighborhood, you know, yeah. and then I started as I got out into the outskirts of Arkansas you start having towns with 100, 200, you know, 500. You go on the Arkansas Delta, like where Black Duck uh, Revival's at, Brinkley's got 2,500 people or so. And yeah. that's pretty big for the Delta, you yeah. know? Uh, yeah. There's a lot of places that are like cotton plants, like 300 people. And Correct me if I'm wrong, but that, doesn't every town in Arkansas put their population on the sign? Uh, yeah, it, I think so. That's a thing, isn't it? Yeah, I think I think it is, yeah. yeah. I've noticed that. I mean, you, it may be population You don't do five. it here? Uh, no, uh, uh-uh. uh, uh-uh. some do. I mean, there, I, you, every now and then you'll see a sign in Mississippi with a city and population, but not, it's not every single one. Like, it yeah, is no. Myself. And it'll, the numbers will get quite small. Like you, small. Can, you can get under a hundred people. <laughs> I know. It's pretty uh, cool. But ooh, excuse me. I don't want to knock your whiskey out there. Uh, all right. So you grew up here. Uh, your parents are still here. Your family's still here. Yeah, yeah. My my parents and the house I grew up in is about a mile down the road. Uh, my grandmother's house was in between here and there. Um, so yeah, man, it's just home. You know, I I went to public school here, and um, you know, I just remember the community aspect of our little town and and how cool it was to grow up in that in that small town feel where everybody knows everybody, and uh, you know, your buddies live 
next door, right down the road and riding bikes in town. You know, I moved off, went to college, uh, um, played baseball like we had talked about earlier and, you know, got my degree, met my wife and we moved actually into another suburb of Jackson, kind of where the hustle and bustle was and in a neighborhood, uh, thought it was going to be cool to grow up around other young families, you know, this, that, and the other. I didn't even know what homeowners dues were until then. Mm. And I didn't really like it. I didn't agree with that whole deal. Yeah, yeah. But I found out pretty quick that that neighborhood living was not for me. Uh, so ultimately ended up, um, we had our first child wanting to come back here, uh, to, you know, what I call home. And so we came back and, um, you know, we're here, uh, a year or two and then I started getting into the duck call thing just as a hobby and we uh this was not our first house in Raymond like uh, we had we lived in my grandmother's house and uh this this became available and we ended up here and I, I could see at that point the duck call business you know was growing it was a hobby but it was still picking up some steam and I knew this could possibly be what I was going to do for a living one day because, number one, I loved it. And number two, I was actually having some success selling duck calls, and I really wasn't even trying to. It was never my goal to sell duck calls. I just wanted to make myself one, go hunt with it. I just thought it was kind of the ultimate accomplishment for a waterfowler. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, but I could tell I started out at our other house, you know, just in a garage, a carport, basically. So, smoking hot during the summer swatting mosquitoes you know and in the winter i had a you know propane heater next to me with my duck cutting clothes on could hardly feel my fingertips so i knew that i really needed and wanted to do something different and and my wife got me a actually a duck call case to put some calls in uh for our anniversary or birthday or something and the guy that made it actually lived here and so I came down to visit him one day to ask him to build me another one. In Raymond or in this house? In this house. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. This, so, was this his woodworking shop? Yeah, yeah. Cool. So I came okay. down to uh, ask him if he'd build me another one. And we were sitting basically kind of right here talking. And he said, hey, by the way, we're uh, grandkids are in Texas, this, that, and the other. He said, we're going to sell our house. And we were right in the middle of trying to figure out if we wanted to, you know, stay in my grandmother's house and, you know, buy it from our family or then I had to build a shop and, you know, or do we need to look? And this happened to just happen that <laughs> we had that conversation. I said, don't do not tell another person what you just told me. Let me go get my wife. Cause I looked around the shop. This shop did not look anything like this when we were having that conversation. He built furniture. It, it was very, you know, it was, it was dusty and dirty and, um, it's it was, real utilitarian. Yeah. It was what you would think of as a woodworking shop, but two inches thick and sawdust when you walked in, but I looked around and had a vision for what it could look like, look like with what I do and, you know, how I wanted it to look. So sure enough, you know, uh, my wife came down, we looked at the house. It's, you know, it's old built in the fifties, but cool, you know, just kind of has that old feel to mm-hmm. it. And, you know, a month later we were moving in. And so that's uh, I, I joke. And I say, uh, it, you know, I've said this on some other podcasts that we bought a shop and a house came with it. Yeah. That's funny. That's, that's Honestly, the place that we moved to about a year and a half ago was very, very much like that. Yeah. I could take, I mean, the house is cool and I could take it or leave it, but yeah. the, uh, the shop was, it was all, uh, it's like a big cinder block shop that had been, uh, skinned over with like native rock. Yeah. And the guy who had it before, you know, he still had like the, uh, 
I guess back in the 60s, it was just a phenomenal place. Like he had a hard line phone out there and he had all the numbers to the different part suppliers and stuff written on that old paneling, like yeah. uh, yeah. an old faded marker. Uh, but I actually, so I want to, we're going to get into talking about duck calls and a bunch, bunch of stuff about duck hunting. But uh, since you've referenced this place, uh, I think that's kind of a, that's kind of a cool place to start. Cause you know, you come in here, it's, I mean, it's beautiful. You've got, you know, that rough cut wood on the walls, uh, lots of bits of history from your hunting career. And, and you see that immediately. Uh, and we've talked kind of about, uh, you know, that you really are, are very intentional in how you present yourself and your work. Uh, you know, you're coming at this, uh, from very much uh, the perspective of an artist. And I, I've been struck that you've really created a very intentional space here to work with the way you have things lit. Uh, and you got candles going on and burning in like an old Jameson bottle and stuff here. You got beautiful guitars hanging around. Uh, and so I think that's really kind of a part of what you're doing. And, uh, tell me a little bit more about that, about how you, how you decided to be so intentional with how the space was set up and how it looked and felt. Yeah. Uh, that's nobody's ever asked me that question before. <laughs> um, the only thing, honestly, there was some intentionality behind it. However, it, it, it wasn't planned if that probably doesn't make any sense. I guess it's just how my mind works. Um, so I guess intentionality meant I did, you know, the walls that aren't covered in the pallet wood, I did want to paint a certain color, obviously, you know, I did want it to have a certain look, but it was, it was, it turned into, it, it kind of morphed and evolved, you know, uh, the pallet wood we got and, and a buddy of mine came and, you know, we put it on the wall. Um, I didn't intentionally have the lighting set like this, but it was just what worked for me to be able to see what I needed to see. It, what it turns out, it's just a, a really awesome spot to photograph. And, you know, we've had lots of uh, photographers come through here and they're all just amazed at the lighting and that was not intentional. So a lot of these things, you know, like the mementos and some of the things that you see, you know, hanging on the walls, um, you know, one of my favorite pieces is the the picture of our, our you know, downtown square hanging above my lathe uh, because it just gives you, gives people, a, if you've never driven through Raymond, when pictures are taken, you can see my little hometown uh, above that. You know, the most intentional thing in here is this wall that everybody signs that comes. Uh, you know, I've told this story a lot, but I, w I went to the Gibson uh, Guitar Factory in Memphis when it was still there and did the tour. And when you walk through the hallway of the factory, there's guitars lining in the hallway and there's all these famous artists that have signed the wall. And I thought immediately, I thought, how cool would it be or how cool is it that those folks left their mark at the place where their instrument was made? And I, you know, I thought to myself, well, I'm making instruments also. So how cool would it be for people to leave their mark in my shop when they come by? Now I'll ask everybody that comes to sign the wall. You don't have to buy a duck call, but that was intentional. And I did it on this wood specifically in case we do ever move or have to move shops or whatever, that wall will go with me. Mm. So that, that wood is on top of sheetrock and that whole thing will go with me if I ever have to leave. That's probably the most intentional part of the whole shop. And it's probably my favorite part of the whole shop, to be honest with you. I can sit here when I take a break and I'll grab a guitar and pick on it or whatever. And I can look at those names and I'll, you know, when you sign it, I'll see your name and I'll remember today. You know, remember making the call, 
a member of this podcast and it'll take me back to where we first met and this, that, and the other. So I see all these names and dates and I, you know, it's, it's just pretty cool. It's really cool for me. Um, just to think back at all these people that have come through and left their mark on my shot. Well, you know, it's, uh, and man, there's so many parallels and layers of metaphors we can get into. Like we were talking about guitars and you know, that, that kind of relationship that a guitar can have with a duck call, you know, you're dealing with something that traditionally is made out of wood and bits of metal. Uh, you know, there's resonance, there's, uh, there's taking this thing that was alive and then it's dead. And then it, goes from being this living thing into kind of having life breathed back into it and it can live on and on and on. And, and, you know, probably for people like you and me, uh, one of the things that makes it even cooler is that it does endure and that there is legacy behind that, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I mean, we're talking about like big things, uh, family and community. And, you know, the first thing you started talking about was the connection you have to this place in this town. Uh, and I know like, like we talked about your, your parents live right down the road. Are they, I thought we had talked about this in when we were turkey hunting in Kansas is, uh, are y'all still running some, a few head of cattle? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, we've had a family farm since 1900. Um, I went and did all the, you know, looking in the records, uh, to see where it for, I was hoping not to get the 18, at least 1899, yeah, yeah. but we, we didn't, my uh, great, great grandparents bought the first parcel of land in 1900 and then it's been added on to since then. But, yeah, been uh, been cattle farmers, um, chickens, horses, pigs, crops. It, it had kind of been there and done that with everything through the generations. Uh, since I've uh, been here, we, we've just had uh, chickens and cows, and now we're just down to cows. So, uh, yeah, it's in our it's in my blood. Uh, it's my dad's passion. It's not what he did for a living but he's always been a part of it. I've always been a part of it. The duck calls has pulled me away from that to a degree because this is so time demanding. And, but it's in my blood. Is it a cow calf operation or? Yeah. Beef cattle, beef gotcha. cattle. And, uh, just to know, you know, we don't have enough to make a living with. We have enough just to be a pain in the butt sometimes. Sure. But, but look, he, he loves it. And, uh, it's about 30 minutes from here. So, you know, it's an hour drive every day there and back. Uh, but yeah, my uh, great grandmother lived there when I was born, and so I spent every weekend down there. Uh, my grandmother was born down there, uh, so yeah, it's 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 uh, very fortunate to have that in our family. Yeah, that's that is really neat, man. And you know, nineteen hundred. Uh, it's weird to think about it now, but you know, folks, uh, you know, folks that are like in high school now, they're referring to like the nineties as the late twentieth century. <laughs> You know, so you're still 1900 is, is still quite some time uh, ago. Um, but I tell you, you know, that farm taught me work ethic. It's, uh, you know, I wish every kid could grow up on a farm. It teaches you responsibility. It teaches you work ethic. It teaches you some mechanical skills. It teaches you, you know, I mean, a lot of kids nowadays don't know what fencing pliers look like. Mm -hmm. I mean, I grew up with them in my back pocket all the time you yeah know, got a big truck. hook hanging off the end yeah. that look like a turkey spur yeah, and then a know. bunch of places to put the wire because you're always having to fix a barbed wire fence that's just the nature of being a farmer and um so it was really good for me my mom worked you know always worked two or three jobs dad had his full-time job plus the farm so what did your folks do for a living my mom was a school teacher but she's also very crafty she has uh you know i guess if i have a creative bone in my body it comes from her uh, so she was always doing pottery or painting or sewing or she was always into something else. 
um, from an artistic standpoint, just as a hobby. She just loved to do it. She sold everything she did. She, uh, she, she did really well at stuff like that, but it helped pay for, you know, a new pair of cleats for me or, you know, whatever I needed as kids. My parents bent over backwards and worked their tails off to give it to us. Um, so, you know, seeing that, seeing them do that and they never missed anything, you know, they both worked the, all those jobs, but they, they never missed practice. They never missed games. Uh, so, you know, I grew up in that type of family situation. What did your father do for a living? He worked for the state. He was a child psychologist. He was the director of what they call the EIP program, which is early intervention. So ba- he worked with babies that were three years and younger that had disabilities. So he would work with the kid and also the family, essentially preparing them for the next step of life. Mm-hmm. So very soft-hearted, gentle-hearted uh, man is, is uh, probably the best way to describe my dad. Man, so, you know, this is kind of starting to expose itself a little bit to me. You know, you've got this history of familial history in this community, longstanding, working with your hands, this tactile understanding of a relationship with place and land and family and community and kind of the responsibility that one has to the community. Uh, Because both of those professions you're talking about are, uh, there's a level of selflessness, you know, and there's something deeper than a paycheck to be involved in both of those. So uh, I think that's actually probably a good segue into the duck call making. So we've touched on it a little bit, but you, uh, you went to, you uh, went to a few different schools on a baseball scholarship, mm-hmm. which is, if you haven't seen Josh before, I mean, he's, he's kind of got like a tall wiry. I mean, he looks like a baseball player. Uh, what position did you play? I played shortstop. Shortstop. Uh, I'm from St. Louis and I have, obviously an affinity for baseball and particularly particularly that position because of Ozzie Smith. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you also kind of strike me too, man. You could, uh, you could kind of play a, a, I feel like you could play a role as like a, a guy with a, like a hand rolled cigarette in, you know, like a Western hat, you know, like kind of <laughs> narrow hipped, just, uh, Peter Fonda, type kind of deal but well, uh you know I, f- I was a professional bullfighter for a couple of years man so. i forgot about that we did talk <laughs> about that yeah so it's all it all makes sense yeah um so i could play that role there you go uh if they ever have you seen that movie once upon a time in the west no i don't guess so. man that's that's one of the best westerns ever it's got charles bronson in it and he says like three words and henry fonda is uh like the evil protagonist in it and yeah he uh that's a movie worth watching, man. It's it's a long like if you just like that kind of moody spaghetti western stuff, that's a fantastic film. Um but so anyway, so you did the baseball thing, uh you were in the corporate world working for Caterpillar for a while. Yeah, I did that twelve years. Yeah. And uh so let's actually take a step back, because uh, we've we've talked about you growing up in this community and, and working with your hands, but what was your relationship uh with hunting, you know, and particularly, I know your father was very influential on that. Yeah. Yeah, he was. He took me, I was 10 or 12 when he started taking me out, uh, waterfowl hunting. You know, we walked wood squirrel hunting and stuff like that before, um, you know, much younger age, but I think 10 or 12 is when I started he started taking me and he, you know, we, I, we couldn't afford any private land. So we hunted all public. And, uh, you know, I've got his journal in there from 1970 to 73. And it's really cool because he's got maps drawn of uh, certain public land places now and, you know, how to get there and, you know, these lakes and, you know, things that you, I mean, that was pre GPS, Mm -hmm. pre satellite, all that. Like, so you had to go find it. 
And so he, they, he and his buddies would find these places, and they were, you know, like you didn't have any competition because people they would get yeah, yeah yeah. So he started taking me to some of those at a young age. So I learned, I started learning how to hunt public land. Uh, you know, at a pretty pretty young age. I mean, we you, you we didn't have a four wheeler or anything. I mean, we didn't have, we walked. And so you'd park your truck at the parking space, be a big gate, and there'd be a mile walk, you know, and my 12-year-old skinny self would be in men's, you know, smallest waders we could find, but he'd have a braided belt cinched tight as he could around my waist. The waders would be folded down, and I'd be carrying whatever I could carry. And uh, so that's how I learned how to hunt. And, you know, I look back at those days, and, man, they're – they were it's amazing i still hunt because i about froze to death because you know they, they didn't make kids clothes back then yeah um but i could see how the connection to to the to the waterfowl and the the uh, you know the calling aspect of it which is what he loved and yeah my dad was the guy that carried a duck call in his pocket every day i mean just eating up with duck calls blew it in the truck driving around anytime he could blow a duck call he was blowing a duck call so i listened to it all the day you know all night in the house and you know pre-cell phone days my buddies would call or whatever on the house phone and you'd hear my dad in the background and eventually it just was they'd even they quit asking you know so what is that so that's just my dad blowing a duck call um so that's how i got my start and, and you know and i hunted public land for the most part got it for a couple of years in college uh you know during a break but pretty much i hunted public land until you know four or five years ago and um you know, being in the business that I am, I've been very fortunate to have some pretty cool invites to some private places. And uh, so, yeah, that's how it started. And he got into competition duck calling when he was 40, when he was my age now. And so then he uh, he did that for a while. Then he directed some contest after that, the Mississippi State and Regionals. Never won anything. Uh, came in second, I think, five times uh, in the Mississippi State. So he had never actually blew in the worlds, but uh just a very he's very respected in in the duck call competition um you know world from the guys that are old enough to know know him you know he's been out of it a while now but uh you know did a lot of a lot of stuff with kids and juniors back then trying to get them involved helping them kind of mentoring um so yeah that's kind of how and of course I came up doing the same thing that he was doing so that's how when I was introduced to duck calls duck hunting competition duck calls and then eventually you know made my started making my own yeah so i mean let's talk about that how did that come into play you said you kind of started as a hobby just want to make something that you could and i totally understand that you want to make something with your own two hands and take it out there and have it convince the birds and kind of complete the cycle so how did that start initially that started in uh 2009 or 10 i went uh, a friend of mine called me he had just started making some calls he got a lathe and uh, everything he needed um you know that was right in the middle of my competition days and he had just called me he said hey i made a few would well, you let's mind? clarify that real quick you're talking about you were you were kind of doing some uh duck call competition Correct. stuff yourself yeah yeah and it was right at my peak where i was blowing a duck call for two or three hours a day practicing really getting after it um and so he just called me because he lived about five minutes down the road. He said, hey, will you come blow these calls and just tell me what you think about feel, sound, all that. Just come critique them for him. So I went down there, and I walked through his garage, and I looked over, and I saw his lathe, and I saw all this sawdust on the ground. And then I go inside, and I see these five calls. And I was – I guess I'd never seen seen all that, you know. All I'd been around for the most part were CNC calls. 
And to see the sawdust, to see the final product, to hear it make a sound, all that, I left thinking, I'm, I'm going to do that one day. And I don't know how, I don't know when, but I'm going to make my own duck call one day. So fast forward three years later, um, that was right at the advent of Facebook, but I put out on a, well, it was 2012, I think, uh, put out on one of the, that was during the forum days, put out on the forum, I was looking for a jet, a drill press, and a lay, and a, a lay drill press, and bandsaw. And a guy, sure enough, lived 30 minutes down the road, had it all. It was used. He was, he was trying to make turkey calls, but it just wasn't working out for him. So I met him, bought it all for what just the drill press would have cost brand new. So I started amassing the tooling, and, uh, you know, a friend of mine that had made calls in the past came over, and we kind of said, oh, you need this, this. And, you know, we actually started turning wood. I'm telling you, I was so ignorant to it. The, the first lay that I had didn't have a variable speed dial on it. And so when I turned it on and put a piece of wood on it, chucked it up and started turning it would actually catch because it was turning so slow well i didn't know that you had to actually move the belt you move the belt to change the speed on this lathe yeah so the, the lathe that, that i've got that's how it's set <laughs> yeah. up yeah and then so then you know then it's figured out well how do you loosen this thing to even move the belt and so you know i mean i literally had just never done anything woodworking wise never turned a lathe on um but you had a familiarity with tools and some mechanization yeah, but more from a, a tractor engine type deal. But yeah, yeah but that, some, that's some transferable knowledge. I mean, you know, is, yeah, yeah. you understood what it was. You understood what it was to bust your knuckles on something and oh yeah, keep messing with it until you got it right. Yeah, sure. so that's how it started, and it just became a just a flat out addiction. So I'd work all day, get home, start turning calls, or you know, making firewood at that point, really. Um, you know, and then got my flat jig and started trying to figure out the whole process of making a tone board and you know i remember it'd be it'd be midnight and our baby would be asleep and would be asleep and i'd need to blow this call so i would actually turn file sand go in the truck blow the call i'd go get in my truck at night just so i wouldn't wake everybody up yeah. go back out file some more sand some more go back in the truck blow the duck call and i just loved it i was just enamored and fascinated and determined to come up with my own tone board. I did know enough and had talked to enough old call makers um, that I knew that's how I needed to do it. If I ever wanted to be respected by those, by the Butches, the Rick Dunn's, uh, the Greg Hoods, those guys, I had to do it the right way, you know, from it, from as scratch as you can start. And so I stayed at it and, you know, it took a few months and a lot of heartburn and frustration, but finally came up with a tone board and then, came up with my shape and you know we were kind of just off to the races made myself my dad my best friend some call you know calls and then just made some more to take to my buddies and at camp and um and then the next thing i know we're uh, the garden and gun thing happened a guy got a hold uh seth fields got a hold of one of my calls and and placed in the top five in the world live duck with it that was his first year of competition calling my first year of making duck calls so a lot of things happened in that first year that gave sound validation through some of the contest stuff. I think the uh, aesthetic validation through the garden gun, because uh, that's what that was more about, was the creativity factor mm -hmm. of what I was doing, not necessarily how good or bad the sound was. So I got validation from every aspect, really, that first year of making calls. And then it just blew up. 
it was, uh, you know, I had to make a Facebook page, Facebook started happening or, you know, uh, some of the duck call pages, you can make your own business page. And, you know, the advent of all that happened right when I was started to figure this thing out. And the next thing you know, I, I have a, I have a small business and didn't even mean to for it to happen. Yeah, man. It, it actually, uh, in many ways, it sounds kind of analogous to black duck revival and kind of what I've got going on. Just, you're doing something for yourself and then all of a sudden it, you know, for whatever reason it's resonating with different people. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of weird how it can go from, uh, nothing to something pretty quickly. And then you kind of have to make that decision. You know, do I want to lean into this? Is this, you know, is this where I'm finding my joy and my satisfaction in life out of, uh, is this something I can make a life on? You know, you got two kids you got to take care of. You got a mortgage, all that. Yeah. Uh, I think it's the past, you know, I think what you and I were just talking about is, we didn't necessarily mean for it to happen. I think when you're, you, you, there, you have to be, you know, good at something. You have to make a quality product. You have to do offer a quality service, whatever it is, or people aren't going to buy it. But I think what ultimately ends up happening once you reach that point is your passion shows, shows through. And that is essentially what people resonate with and are attracted to in some form or fashion is if you believe in what you're doing, so much that it, that other people see it that that is what makes uh, a business grow or makes a hobby turn into a business a successful one at least and then it turns into you know lifestyles and this that and the other but I think it's the beginning of it is the passion that you have for something and, and I think it's yeah. it's genuine and if it's not genuine people see straight through it yeah well you know I think that uh and I mean this is bigger than just you know small businesses or or the like, but I think that everyone is, whether they realize it or not, you know, what they're really striving for is to live like an authentic life, you mm-hmm. know, and a, an authentic life to me is one where there's a, there's internalized value in it, you know, and, and that you're proud of what you're doing. And like you said, you're passionate, you care about what you're doing. And, uh, you know, I've heard this expression before, like, you know, my boss pays me, uh, pays me just enough not to quit so I work just hard enough not to get fired you know and that's uh you know I mean that's every time you go to the gas station or Home Depot or something like that's who you're dealing with Mm -hmm. you know and uh it it does it just reads very differently when someone is enthusiastic and and passionate about what they're talking about You, you don't have to you can give someone a little bit of a prompt and they can talk to you about it forever and you can hear the enthusiasm and in their voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm kind of, I'm kind of deciding if I want to go down that. I think I'll step away from that rabbit hole uh, real quickly, because you know, you would assume that most people that would be listening to this would have some familiarity with uh water fouling or how a duck calls made, but let's give these folks a, a little bit of a description. Exactly. Uh, you know, like my mom, she calls it a duck caller, you know, mm-hmm. and, which is like old timers kind of did that. Yep. To uh, or like I met a guy this I was hunting with last uh, season, and I said something about tuning a duck call. And he said you can tune a duck call, and I said yeah, you take it apart. And he's like you can take a duck call apart, you know. And this guy had been on plenty of hunts. Yeah. Uh, so let's just kind of like if you were describing a duck call to a five year old that had never seen it, how would you describe it to them? <laughs> well, I guess we start off with uh, it's, it's two parts: a barrel and an insert. 
Um, the insert is uh, essentially your sound mechanism, your tone board, which has your reed and your cork. In and, and we're basically talking about like a, a female and a male. Like the insert fits into the sleeve or a sleeve like a, into the barrel. Yeah, that's a yeah. it's a barrel. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, um, two parts put together when you present air into it, uh, it vibrates the reed, which is what produces the sound. And it seems and looks very simple. But as we were talking about earlier, that tone board, man, it, there's so many things that that go into creating that sound and that tone that that we're looking for as call makers and you guys are looking for as hunters you know, one thing affects the other, you know, you sand here and it affects this, or you drill this deep and it affects this. And, uh, you know, getting back to that whole start on that flat jig, it forces you to learn all those dynamics of that tone board. And so there's some, there's some science in it. There's just flat out, just, just a lot of knowledge that just takes hours of screwing it up, screwing them up enough to figure out, don't ever do that again. Cause that doesn't work. But then you find something that it does work. And so, where where it does seem like a simple instrument, there's a whole lot that goes into making that those right tones come out of it. And then even as the even as the hunter, the person using the call, there's a certain way you have to present air into it to make that reed vibrate correctly to create the right tones also. So it's it's kinda like a bow and arrow and a you know, a deer hunter. You got a shooter and you get a you got the bow. You could have a perfect bow but a bad shooter it's not gonna shoot right. Um, you're not gonna hit the target much the same you know there's there is a way to blow a duck call correctly uh, that you have to learn and master man and it's to me it's 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 an incredibly personal uh kind of an incredibly personal process uh and and i guess by that i mean that like in many people that have learned to blow a duck call or uh, you know, I'd say probably there's been a, a million people that went to a Walmart and they got that Buck Gardner CD, you know, and that uh, poly call and there's that three blind mice and just kind of learning that cadence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they talk about like, hold it up to your mouth like you're drinking out of a Coke bottle or something. But even within that, there's so many different ways to blow a call. There's, and you know, you start getting into the minutia of this, especially in the competition world, but you, you know, talking about some people tell you never to blow a, a call dirty, you know? Like the way that I got a duck call to make the sound I wanted to make was blowing the duck call dirty. You know what I mean? And that's just worked for what worked for me. Uh, and then you get into the different levels of finesse and, uh, and you know, and I think a lot of people don't understand that competition calling or kind of main street calling, like they call it is, is really more of a demonstration of what the call and the caller can do, uh, as opposed to, what a duck actually sounds like in the field. I mean, it's all based off of the same stuff, but you're taking it to a, you're taking it to an extreme level. And it's because as someone who blows a duck call, you start to understand and value the, you know, those particularities in the presentation of air and, and hold and the ability to, to make that read vibrate at just the right cadence mm-hmm. uh, and tenor that you want. Uh, but anyway, but back to your specific call, you, you've got one tone board, you've yeah. got uh, like one basic design, and then you've got a, a couple different stylistic variations on that. Yeah. yeah. But uh, it, man, it's actually something that I'm, I, I, I feel like I'm uh, very much drawn to with the way that you're making your calls is that 
you created a tone board, you know, so you created a, a new instrument, something that, you know, was based off of lots of people made duck calls, but the one that you made was particular to use. Like you made something new that hadn't existed in the world before. Right. And you, you honed it to the point that you felt that it was everything you wanted it to be. It was representative of how you wanted a duck call to sound. And that's what you're putting out into the world, mm -hmm. you know? And then you have, uh, the artistic ability with all these different woods, uh, to, to give a different personality uh, to every call, you know? And, and I, would, I would really assume that the way a call looks uh, and the way a call feels in a person's hand uh, is influencing how that call gets used and, and, and how they're blowing it. Absolutely. Uh, so, I mean, if you don't mind, man, speak to that a little bit. Like what, so, you know, we've got the mechanics of that tone board and, and what you've created, but... Uh, the artistic aspect with everything else. And, and, and I'm talking about like the stylistic choices with uh, burning your lines onto it with a yeah. wire or, or uh, you know, how you're putting a band on and just talk a little bit about that if you would. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a lot of that was, was trial and error and you know, I always wondered why people pin bands on and didn't just glue them. Well, it didn't take long to figure out after you have a few fall off or, you know, uh, Heck, even when I first started, the first call I ever made, I have to glue the band on uh, every year because I didn't even know wood shrank. You know, I didn't <laughs> moisture content. Like, there's so much that goes into a piece of wood before you could even put it on a lathe. Um, but that that was a lot of evolution of, uh, you know, s just starting drawing up different shapes and, and, and you know, coming up with, with different ideas that maybe you haven't seen before. And, and I, fi if I found it easier in the beginning than I do now, to be quite honest with you. It's weird how certain, I'll go through dry spells with quite, you know, with no new creative ideas. And I hate those time periods. And I don't know sometimes where to draw inspiration from or it's just, it's just not happening. So basically I'm just going through, you know, filling the orders that I have. Um, but every now and then, then all of a sudden you'll get 10 ideas in one week that nobody's ever done before. You know, and so it's been a, a you know an evolutionary process for me. Uh, my actual shape was an accident. It was not supposed to look like that. It actually was more of a rounded, you know, under the band where I kind of where my taper starts. It's it's pointed there. That was going to be more of a rounded area, and I was turning actually a piece of uh, synthetic material, and a big chunk of it came out. And I didn't want to waste the material. Uh, this is first few weeks I'd started and so I just turned out the chunk and it came out into the shape that is my current shape now so really didn't even mean for it to happen that way it ended up and then I started looking at you know other calls and nobody else's call looked exactly like this so I ran with it it just it was aesthetically pleasing to me uh, and you know the only thing that I've tweaked since then really is the band size it used to be a larger diameter band now it's a little smaller so I have a little thinner call than when I first started um, so, you know, things, and, and I don't measure anything really. So it's all feel and sight to me. So, you know, if I lined up 20 calls to you, you would say they all look basically exactly the same. I can see a difference in every single one of them. Um, I just, that's just how I turn and how I function. It's just, it's just feel. Um, there's some guys that, you know, uh, my good friend, John, John Stevens, John will draw it out to scale on paper. And then he'll take his calipers, you know, from the lathe to the paper. He's going to, 
that's how his mind functions, you know. Um, so we all end up at the same end product. We just get there in different ways. So it's fun to go visit guys like that and watch and see how they do things versus how I do things. And we both kind of shake our heads at each other and say, I could never do it like that. But it works for me and it works for him. So a lot of it was just evolution, just learning and, and messing up enough to learn, don't do that again, but then, you know, do this or that, or this looks good or that doesn't look good. And, you know, I've got drawers full of uh, scrap wood over there that, you know, barrels I've messed up, inserts I've messed up, and I just throw them in the drawer. If it's not right, it doesn't leave the shop. Man, uh, actually, let's let's talk about John Stevens for a second, because uh, I know you, you do work with him, uh, maybe not quite a bit, but regularly anyway. Uh, and if you don't know, John Stevens is the owner of R&T Calls, uh, based out of Stuttgart, Arkansas. They're kind of one of the main folks in the duck call making game. Uh, John Stevens is, I think, a three-time world champion uh, on those main street competitions. Three-time world champion and champion of champions, so he is retired. He can't, yeah. can't do it anymore. Is Explain that. You, you can win it three times. You can and, win it three. And then you're out? Yeah. It, well, yeah, no. Uh, they have a champion of champions contest every five years, and anybody that's ever won the Worlds can blow in the champion okay. of champions. And so uh, once you win that, you're – you're done. You're you're retired. Um, but yeah, after three, you are. But you still have the opportunity to blow in the champion of champions. Yeah. So that's um, kind of that was that's kind of like his opus calling competition. Yeah. And and solidly cements him in the lexicon of duck call uh, competition blowers. And, of course. And now yeah. uh, R and T. You know, and his starting, hand turn line is Jay Stevens. Yeah. Calls, yeah. So he's got R and T, which you know originally he acquired years ago from Butch, who was a very well known, a historic figure in uh, Southern duck hunting. I mean, just duck hunting in general. And then uh, John has also started uh, Jay Stevens Calls, which is him in his shop, very much the way you are, turning these things by hand and just putting all of his heart and soul and artistic uh, ability and sensibilities into these calls. And then uh, you guys do a collaboration for the last several years called skinny hippie. Yeah. I guess you being the skinny one and him being the hippie. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's pretty obvious. <laughs> so, uh, and explain a little bit about how you guys do that. Cause that's, that's, a, I think it's super interesting that you guys are taking something that's so personal and really in many ways, very intimate. And you're, you're able to uh, combine them and work together in that way. Yeah, it's been fun. It started, John and I have, have known each other uh, for a while and, when he got into call making, um, you know, the hand turn line of things, we would see each other at various, you know, shows or whatever. And he, I think the first time maybe it came up was at Real Foot. There's a duck call show at Real Foot every year. And I had the mobile shop there and he walked in, checked it out. And um, I think I jokingly said, you know, why don't you, why don't you bring your tail in here and turn a barrel or something, you know, just kind of, kind of, kind of messing with him and, and I said, well, you know, if you had your tools, you could do that. And he looked at me and he said, all I need are these right here. He held his hand, you know, left and right hand. Up. And I said, I hear you, whatever, John. So, And then we had talked about it a few more times. Man, we got to get together at this or that, you know, show with the mobile shop there and do do some kind of collaboration. We didn't know what, but just something together. And it just never worked. I was always super busy or he was he was super busy with people wanting to meet him by calls talk to him um that type thing 
Well, finally, I think it was last year, last July maybe was was when we find. I called him and I said, "Look, I I need a break. This was this was kind of towards the end of COVID, and I said I've got to get out of this shop. I'm I'm going to go crazy looking at the same walls every day for so long." I said, "We've been talking about this collaboration deal." I said, "I'm just going to drive up to your shop, and you know I'll bring." you know, wood, bring my tools, whatever we need. And, and let's, let's, let's do something. And so the night before I was leaving, I was trying, you know, I thought, you know, John is so well-respected in, in the industry and what it, what he does. And, and I'm trying to build my, um, you know, whatever to that point one day. And I thought, you know, this thing is really cool. Like it needs a name. This collaboration needs a name. And, I came up with, uh, he has a call he calls the weirdo and John and I are both kind of out there. You know, I take it as a compliment if somebody calls me weird, that's, you know, unique, whatever. I, I like that. But we both have a very little different sense of different things, but he has a call that his, the name of the call is a weirdo. So I was thinking, well, you know, skinny weirdo, that's, that's kind of cool. And, and I went in and I asked my wife, I said, what do you think about that? She's like, yeah, you know, it just doesn't quite have the ring, the catch to it. And I said, what about skinny hippie? And she said, well, that's actually pretty catchy. And so I texted him and all I got back was a ha ha. And I was like, well, dang, I was kind of let down because I thought it was a great idea. Yeah. Know? So I travel up there the next day and we're setting up and trying to figure out what we're going to do. And I said, hey, what about that text? You didn't, you don't like the name Skinny Hippie? He said, yeah, I thought it was really cool. I thought you were joking. I said, no, I wasn't joking. I think, you know, it describes us to a T. And it sounds good together, look cool in a hat, shirt, whatever. So we, the first day, we sat there with notepads and we sketched out two duck calls. And with him making the barrel on one and me making the insert and then vice versa for the other call, I got to design one and he got to design one. And we had to make what each other, you know, drew up. And then we sat there, and uh, uh, I think it was a he or or Blake. His uh, Blake Fisher works for R and T. We sketched out a SH, and that became the logo right off the bat. And then we started messing with boxes, and Blake was very instrumental in, in helping us with the graphics of a lot of that. And so we sat there, and we we made two calls, and you know sold them. They did, they sold for a lot of money, and you know the next thing we know, we were like, wow, this was fun what we that was also a learning curve because i didn't take my lay that first time so it took a long time to make two calls because i'd have to wait for him to get his part done then he'd have to wait for me and so the next time i went i took my lathe my tools and it went much smoother much faster we drew out designs a whole lot quicker and uh, we did four that time and then this last time we did six. So we, I guess we've made a total of 12 calls now under the skinny hippie logo and brand and have plans to do much more. I mean, you know, and it's, it's amazing what they're selling for. It's uh we're blown away and humbled by it that people would pay that kind of money for something that we made, you know, uh, you know, just design made, but we've put, we put so much thought and effort into every call. Uh, it's just neat to see what it's, what it's done and what it's turned into. Man, and for folks that don't understand uh, the 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 heights that a duck call can reach as far as price, I, I think it's very analogous to guitars. It really is. Like mm -hmm. you can you can absolutely and most people probably start on just like a Squire uh, hundred. I don't know what a Squire costs now. One hundred twenty bucks. Probably when I bought one yeah. a long time ago. Uh, and you know that would be kind of like your mass produced CNC 
polycols. Yeah. We're talking about polycarbonate. And material adds a lot to it. And uh, then just the individuality of the call. And then it's it's like anything else, you know, a really beautifully uh, constructed, uh, you know, piece of what we're talking about essentially here is functional art, you know, by a very well-respected craftsperson will uh, will demand a higher price. And, and, and to be frank, when we're talking about these calls that are reaching four or five or ten thousand dollars, these are these are going to collectors. I mean, yeah. folks aren't really running these calls probably very much. I did see one. I went and hunted with a, a friend of mine last year, and did not actually. Well, I did know he had it. Um, had no clue that he was actually going to hunt with it. But we get to the blind, and obviously it's dark. Well, it starts getting light, and I look over at his lanyard, and he's got a dadgum skinny hippie on his lanyard. Really. And I'd also, I started in 2014, I started something called the traveling duck call, which I made a call and I sent a journal out and I would mail it to one person and they would hunt with it, journal it, their hunt, and then they would mail it to a buddy. He would hunt with it, journal his hunt. Then it just kind of carried on. And there's a note at the front of the journal that says, you know, if you end up with this thing at the end of January, please send it back to me. My address is in there and my phone number. So I've amassed over the years, these journals of, of that duck call being circulated now around the world it's been to uh obviously throughout north america canada but it was also in italy for a year oh wow and so i've got all these stories in there in, those are in italian and so i don't even know what they say um is raggio an italian name? it is it is but i don't speak or read italian so uh so that is something that i've been doing for a long time and last year with covid and everything i just carried it with me uh to all these camps that i went to and i would you know ask somebody to use it and uh so i gave it to to my buddy so he has the traveling duck call which is really you know one off one of a kind people just get to hunt with it once and a skinny hippie on the same lanyard so that was a pretty cool uh pretty cool sight for me to look at and see and reminisce about the skinny hippie duck call and making that and then tell him and show him look at the journal and see where all that other call had been it was pretty neat man that's a that's a neat idea with that traveling duck call man and uh yeah, no, you're 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 obviously doing some. Uh, we we talked about this before we started recording. You know, like a lot of waterfowling and duck hunting and stuff is. I mean, this is not a cost-effective way to feed your family. You know, like a hundred. You know, nineteen hundred back when your family was starting the, that farm. You know, like belly crawling up on a pond with a punt gun was an effective way to yeah. feed your family. But I mean, we're doing this for for a lot of different reasons. You know, and I've kind of waxed poetic many times about why I'm doing it, uh, but. You, you're absolutely building some kind of romance into your brand and your legacy, and that's super cool. Uh, before I forget, uh, I mean, I know you'll be in Arkansas probably quite a bit this season. Uh, bring that journal with you because we've got a good friend, Marcella, man. She's from Rome, so she could read it for you. Yeah. And her, uh, her husband is the, the chief of fisheries in Arkansas. So actually, it's in there. We'll just take a picture of it. Yeah, it we'll, get, we'll see. I think, I think they actually are in Rome right now visiting. But, uh, man, so we'll kind of start winding the conversation down, but – yeah. Again, kind of talking about like the romance and the 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 feeling behind uh, duck hunting and and calls in particular and all this kind of legacy and familial history. Uh, and obviously, you know, I I have two daughters, so like I'm gonna hopefully raise daughters that uh, that want to duck hunt and have some of these sort of romantic familial connections to it. But uh, I you know just still probably largely duck hunting is a thing that's passed down between fathers and sons, right? Mm. Uh, and we've talked a little bit about that, uh, a couple examples of it. Uh, and so I want to ask you to kind of relate two stories to kind of close this up here. One would be the story you were 
uh, you were just telling us a couple hours ago before you started turning that call that we watched you make uh, about the, the gentleman who had, and, and, and to explain to folks also, how long of a waiting list do you have on calls right now? Uh, it's roughly 18 to 24 months. So if someone wants a call from, from Josh, they're going to put an order in, uh, and it might be two years until you get that call. So yeah. just to, uh, so you understand that that's what happened here, like about a year ago or so, you said that this gentleman had requested you make a call for his son. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you would, just tell that story, because I thought it was super important. It speaks to a lot of why this stuff matters. Yeah, you know, I've had, I've, I've had a lot of heartfelt moments happen through the duck call business. I've been very fortunate to experience some things that have been really cool and, and heartfelt, but this was one of the, the top stories that I have. And it happened this past week, this gentleman called last September and he is, he was, he was a fellow Mississippian and he, he ordered a call for his son for his birthday this year. So, uh, his birthday is, uh, is actually next week. And I keep a separate stack of orders that have those specific date. Like if it's for anniversary birthday or something like that, I keep a separate uh, stack order form stack for those and luckily, uh, another guy had called uh, this week and ordered one for next year for his son. And so I happened to grab that stack and I realized just in a haste that that call was due the next day, uh, the, the one that the, the, the guy had ordered last September. And so I was, it, was, it was about midday and I was, I was pretty much freaking out because I, um, what he wanted was a very, the, basically one of the nicest calls that I could build. And he had, he had, we had, you know, all the uh, instructions were on the order form and um, I ended up getting it done. And the next morning I was, uh, you know, like I do with every call, take just nice pictures of it. So I'm texting him the pictures, telling him it's done, um, asking, uh, you know, I can hand deliver it. I can overnight it, seeing when exactly his son's birthday was. Cause typically I give myself a little bit of grace period on the due date. Well, the text wouldn't go through, and the phone, when I called him, uh, was not active. And so uh, I looked him up, just Googled his name. It turned out he was an attorney, and so I called his office. Uh, his assistant wasn't available, uh, but said I'd get a call back. Well, I noticed uh, I sent him a message on Facebook, and I noticed he was friends on Facebook with one of my best friends. And so I called my, my buddy, and I said, hey, you know, this guy's ordered this call. His son's birthday's coming up in a few days. I need to get in touch with him. I think I have the wrong number. Do you have his number? And he said, man, I hate to tell you, but he passed away in de- this past December. So he passed away, you know, three months after he placed the order for his son's uh, duck call for his birthday this year. So I said, all right, well, this is a, uh, this is interesting. Like I've never had this happen. Um, you know, do you have his wife's number? Do you have, how am I, how, I need you to help me figure this out. He said, well, he wasn't married, but here was one of his buddies. Uh, here's his phone number. I think he'll help. So I called his friend, told him the situation, and uh, he he ended up being the executor of his estate. And so he could handle it. He knows the son. And I said, I'm just curious. I said, you know, I saw where he was 52 when he passed away. I said, how old is his son? You know, I, I didn't know if it was something that he was buying for a, a very young kid that wasn't hunting yet or if it was an older. And he said, no, it would be his 18th birthday uh, next week. And so when he told me that, you know, I was, I was getting somewhat emotional knowing that I'm about to mail this kid his birthday present from his dad, who's been gone now for, you know, eight months. And 
I write a letter with every call, uh, and and so I've you know I I took a lot of time to write that letter to that kid, and I have a feeling he's going to appreciate it. I have a feeling it's probably going to be very emotional for him, just because I've only told a few people this story, and every one that I told about teared up you know my dad cried like a baby when I told him what had happened and because if you put yourself in that situation it's a cool story but if you put yourself in that kid's situation to be able to open up your 18th birthday present from your dad it's it's I mean I I can't imagine how that's going to feel I hope it's a good feeling for him and I hope it's something that he'll treasure forever but that's uh that was a pretty heavy one that happened this week you know and for it to for it to be a tool, you know, it, for it to be something that he can use and, and have a relationship with. Uh, you know, my dad died last year, and I have, you know, he had kind of started giving me some of his tools before he passed away, and I've got tools of his that when I'm using them, uh, you know, it makes me think of, like, I remember being eight years old and my dad showing me how to uh, swing a hammer, you know, yeah. like, don't choke up on it, swing from the end so you have leverage, that kind of stuff. Uh, or I've actually got I've got a shovel that was my great uncle's. It was my the man who my dad was named after. So I'm like the third generation to use this shovel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's something. I mean, you know, if you're, you're talking about big heady things, you're talking about legacy. Uh, I mean, and this is beyond just that kid getting something and knowing that his dad was thinking about him. You yep. know, but you know, this is something that. He could, he might blow this call for the next 20 years and then he might pass it. Maybe he has a kid and on their 18th birthday, mm-hmm. you know, this could go down generations. Yeah. And course. so, yeah, for you to, and I talk a lot about, uh, with hunting specifically with me, how it kind of, uh, involves me in this continuum, you know, and, and that's, what's so cool in a lot of ways about these duck calls is that, I mean, yeah, it, it I mean, I ran over a duck call one time with a, with my truck and I hope that never happens to any of the beautiful things you're creating, (laughs) but you know, you could have something that endured and endured and carried on and multiple generations could use it. And as long as they take care of it and, you know, keep both loops on from that lanyard on there so they don't drop that insert. Uh, I mean, a hundred years from now and duck hunting could look very different, you know? Uh, I mean, it looks different than it did 20 years ago, you know, in, in our region. Yeah. Um, man, that's really, that is, that's a super beautiful and impactful story. And, uh, yeah, I, I can't imagine it's not going to be, uh, you're not going to be participating in a memory that, that that guy carries for the rest of his life. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. I do a lot of, a lot of, uh, calls for kids that are sometimes not even born yet. And, you know, those letters I write to the kid and I seal them and I tell the dad or the mom, you know, you can't open this letter until you give the kid the duck call. And I, you know, I anticipate them being 10 to 12. So they're putting the, they're putting these duck calls up. They're putting this letter up and that letter will be 12 years old. And when he opens it, it's going to say your dad, you know, ordered this call for, had this call made for you, um, you know, before you were actually even born. <laughs> uh, and yeah, so he was thinking about you. He was thinking about you. And, um, so those are, those are some pretty cool calls that I get to make. Yeah, man. You know, I was kind of feeling like uh, maybe I was dead inside, and then we kept talking about it, and yeah, I just got in my feelings a little bit thinking about that. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, man, you know, I've seen some stuff on YouTube, uh, and we've talked about your uh, your dad too, but 
in particular, we were you were telling me about this one green head, this mallard mount that you have here, and that it's, it's normally you're mounting kind of more unusual ducks. So you've got like red heads, and you got a obviously I was drawn to the black duck you have yeah. over there. There's a buffalo uh, head in there. Yeah, you know, and I like that too. I like kind of mounting weird ducks, yeah. uh, especially because we come from, you know, we live in a region where like mallard is king. Um, yeah. But man, what do you call your dad when you're talking to him? Dad, you just call him dad. Yeah. See, I well. Call, I, well yeah, Dad, but my uh, my kids call him Papa, mm-hmm. so, you know, sometimes it just is yeah. Papa. Uh, my parents are Nona and Papa to my kids, so Nona's Italian for grandmother, and uh, so, but no, he's he's just always been Dad. I, I mean, I called my, uh, I called my father Daddy my entire Daddy, life, yeah. you know, which is like a, it's a carryover, because my grandparents, you know, his parents were from Mississippi and Arkansas. Yeah. And it's kind of like a cultural thing. Like, folks up north don't call – grown men don't call their fathers daddy. Mm-hmm. But I always did. Um, but, yeah, tell me, tell me a little bit about that, uh, about that mountain, why it was so, so special to you. Yeah, my dad had a, had a transplant uh, three years ago. And um, I'm not going to get into that whole story. But, basically, he was on a list in New Orleans, way down the list, and would not have made it to get that transplant. And I was keeping folks involved or updated on what was going on via social media. And one day I was at a Delta Waterfowl banquet and a gentleman introduced himself to me and was basically just saying, you know, man, I follow you and just keep up the good work. Enjoy what you're doing from a duck call side of things. Well, it turned out I I made a post that next uh, day about my dad's situation and health and all that. And he saw it. And he uh, he called me and he said, hey, I'm sitting next to my hunting buddy who is the head, head of the liver transplant team in, at UMC in Jackson. He'd love to talk to you guys about possibly, you know, seeing what this hospital could do here. We didn't go there. They're known for their heart transplants but not livers. And this guy had been brought in to really start ramping the program up. Well, he was number 21 at this other hospital out of town. Um, so we go through the process, the same process uh, with this hospital. It ends up they don't have much of a list. He's at the bottom of the list, but he's number four. <laughs> so Wow, big difference. Yeah. And uh, uh, it was a, about two weeks after that, we got a phone call on December 31st. And it was they had um, had gotten a liver. And so on January 1st, which is my, so my mom's birthday, uh, it was the first split liver, split liver this hospital had ever done where they gave half to my dad, half to another recipient. And now he's, I mean, he was, he was, he didn't have much longer to be here. He was in bad shape. And so, you know, it saved his life. And so essentially you can say, if I don't ever start making duck calls, that guy never comes up to me at that Delta Waterfowl banquet. We never meet the guys at, at UMC and that transplant team, and my dad's probably not here today. Uh, some other things could have worked I mean, out. No, seriously, man. Like that's a, that's making a duck calls saved your dad's life. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. So, uh, so that was uh, one of our first hunts together, and that duck came in, and we shot him together, and so that's why we why I mounted that duck. It's a pretty mount too, man. It's like really well done. It uh, is. Yeah. Yeah. That's man. That's an awesome story. Yeah. Uh, Man, it's 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 kind of it's kind of awe inspiring the roads you can end up down, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, and really think back to that, man. Like your dad, your dad had found value 
in hard work and trying and earning stuff. And that's how he hunted. And that's how he introduced you to hunting and to duck hunting and those mile long walks and those waders. And that, you know, percolated itself down 40 years later into that opportunity, you know, that serendipity presenting itself. And, you know, I mean, that's like some chicken and the egg type stuff all over. It's, you know, the duck and the egg type stuff. Uh, man, that's really beautiful. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's really beautiful, man. It's, uh, I've had a heck of an experience over the past eight years since I started turning duck calls. My life has been not any better or any worse, but I've I've had some really awesome experiences. Everything from stuff like the stories we just told to just some just some really cool and neat things that have happened just by taking that leap of faith and you know quitting my corporate job and doing this you know full time. It's stressful. It's super stressful. I work seven days a week to make ends meet, but I love it. But so why why do you do it? Uh, because I love it. I love it. I you know I love being my own boss. I love the creative side. It's it's mainly why I turn ninety nine percent of you know wood calls because I see the outside of that square blank and I can't wait to see what the inside looks like and see what the final product is going to look like. Um, I just I love it. I love the interaction with my customers. A lot of my customers have become some of my best friends. You know I love. Uh, I don't love to travel, but I love when I get there. I love the interactions of some, like some of the things that you and I have been on together. Um, you know, the different duck camps I get to do that just the, the people that I get to meet, it's just incredible. Um, and I, and I forget about it sometimes cause I get caught up in this little, in this shop and I don't see what's going on or hear or, or, you know, what's going on outside of the shop. But then I'll get somewhere and somebody uh, uh, give me a compliment on a picture or Instagram or just anything in something in general with the business. And I think, okay, wow, things are, are resonating with people. And that's, that makes me proud and, and, and feel good about what I'm doing. So I, I feel like I'm somehow impacting our world or trying to in a positive way. And that's, you know, that's a good feeling. Man. You you missed the one thing I was wanting you to say, and it's something you brought up when we were in Montana last month uh, about what you were hoping to communicate to your 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 children with it. Yeah, you know we're we're proponents of do. You know, it's it's not about money, right? It's it's living life and doing what you want to do. What's going to make you happy? Sure, you got to have a little bit of money, and you know, but we're we're proponents of doing what you love. And I had to look in the mirror one day and say, do you really love this corporate job you're doing? Or are you doing it just for the paycheck and the benefits and, you know, everything that that job had to offer? And how do you go tell your kids to follow their dreams if you're, if you're not, if you don't have the guts to do it? So I really had to do a self-evaluation when it came to that. Um, you know, and also what I do is it's, it's a very traditional thing. There's not many folks do what I do. And so trying to keep a tradition alive and show my kids, hey, you can follow your dreams and you can make a living and take care of your family. And it doesn't have to be the quote unquote eight to five with, you know, corporate type job. It can be something totally outside the box. I don't know. You know, I, I know many duck call makers, but if you walked up to a, somebody on the street and said, hey, you any duck call makers, they probably don't know any, you know, so just getting outside of the norm, being unique and uh, finding what you're good at and what you love. 
it took me a long time. I mean, you know, I didn't start till I was around 30 years old that I didn't know that I had this ability. Man, I think we should normalize that actually not being a long time. I think it's poppycock that you're supposed to figure out everything you're, you're going to do with the rest of your life at 18. Yeah, I mean, it sounds crazy. to, have you heard, uh, uh, what is that? There's that, uh, we're talking about our, my buddy Clay Nuka, man, and he just did a podcast or starting a podcast series about, uh, Daniel Boone and the guy who kind of wrote the formative Boone biography of the last 20 years has a quote in that book. And it stood out to Clay and it stood out to me when I read it too, about that, you know, artists, like kind of the great propellers of society, like they come into their own in their mid thirties, mm. you know, uh, like, and, and you start thinking about a lot of the great, uh, and very impactful and enduring writers and, and, uh, and visual artists, you know, a lot of that formative and lasting work was done between like 30 and the early forties, you know? So yeah. essentially it's all down here. Hill for uh, you from here, man. <laughs> well. You're done. No, man. Uh, no, I, I love the story, man. I think it's a, uh, yeah, I think there's so many resonant levels to it that, you know, obviously I was initially drawn to it because I love waterfowl and I love hunting ducks and uh, I love blowing a duck call, you know. It's like I remember when I first got a duck call to, to do a feed call. Yeah, you know, and Marianne, my wife Marianne is here. She's a uh, doing the photography for this, but uh, well, you're a work with your hands guy too, so you appreciate yeah. and understand that side of things. Well, I remember, <laughs> I remember calling Marianne and being like, "I did it, I did it, I did it," <laughs> and you know, she was happy for me and still didn't care. But uh, anyway, well, uh, how would folks get a hold of you if they wanted to uh, get a duck call in a couple of years? Well, website uh, is there, RaggioCustomCalls.com. dot um, I get a ton of messages through Instagram. That's at Razio Custom Calls. Uh, there's also Facebook. Everything's Razio Custom Calls. So pretty easy to find. Um, all my information is 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 there. Uh, shoot me DMs. Uh, call me. Shoot me an email, and I will respond back. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks very much, man. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, man. Thank you for being here. Yes, sir. Hey, folks. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of the Black Duck Revival Podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please do the things you've heard so many times before. Subscribing and a five-star review on iTunes helps tremendously. This podcast is engineered and edited by Brian Sachs in St. Louis, Missouri, and the title track music is by Dr. Bionic out of Cincinnati, Ohio. If you'd like to keep up with Black Duck Revival or maybe even book an adventure in the Arkansas Delta, you can go to blackduckrevival.com or you can find me on Instagram at blackduckrevival. I'd love to have you out for a hunting or a fishing trip. Thanks again. Until next time.